Um, technically, we're past Advent, but who cares, right? Um, I have one more message, and it's kind of on the theme of the coming of Christ. This morning, I want to look at this passage that um, has kind of the language of warfare in it, the language of warfare. One of the many themes, one of the themes that we hear in some of the Christmas carols that we sing um, is the theme of Christ's assault on death, that Jesus came to deal with death, that he came to deal a death blow to death. Um, And as Christians, we desperately need to understand this, and not just understand cognitively, but we need to get this down into our bones so that we live like faithful Christians to the end. One of my favorite Christmas carols that we sing is, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And there are two verses that very explicitly express this. One verse says, O come, O key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe for us the heavenward road, and bar the way to death's abode. Another verse that we sing here uh, says, O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. And this theme, this idea that Christ came to deal with death is so important because our text this morning here in Hebrews 2, and we go to other passages as well, but it assumes that everyone, even if unconscious, either has in the past or does now fear death. Either in the past, or maybe, maybe this is dealt with for you because you have come to Christ and it is, it is a thing, death's dark, sh- dark shadow has been dispersed for you. It's not something you're concerned about at all. But either in the past or now, everyone has or is fearful of death. And I think our empirical experience testifies that people are afraid of dying. People lust after safety. And comfort. And we need to know this truth that Christ came to deal with death. Of course, we want to use wisdom in how we live. We don't want to live reckless lives. I would never encourage anyone because you don't, you're not afraid to die to go do something insanely stupid and crazy just to prove how brave you are and that you're not afraid to die. That's not how we're to live either. We're to be good stewards of the life that God has given us. But we also need to live like Moses prayed in Psalm 90, I think it's verse 12 when he prayed, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. People in the West, certainly in our nation, spend an inordinate amount of time and energy ensuring that they will not die or at least shielding themselves from the reality that they'll die. It's a bad thought. We've got to push that away. Of course, this is futile, absolutely futile, because one of the surest things that we can all count on is that death will come looking for us someday. Everyone here will die. That is, of course, unless Christ returns first, which we ought to pray for. Amen? 
And as Christians of all people in the world, we should and must think clearly about this. And if we do, I would suggest if we do think clearly about this, and this gets down that Christ came to deal with death fundamentally, he became a man, he did the work he did to accomplish something in order to deal decisively with death. If that gets down into us, the words Merry Christmas will carry an even deeper meaning. Whether, of course, you're in tip-top shape or whether you're close to dying, whether you live another 40 years or another 40 minutes. So here's the big idea of Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Here's what this passage tells us. Christ came to do two things. He came to destroy and to deliver. That's a a language of warfare, isn't it? He came to destroy an enemy, and he came to deliver. He came to destroy the devil and deliver his people from the fear of death. He came to destroy the devil who, this passage says, has power, the power of death. And he came to deliver his people from the enslaving power of death of being afraid of death. Jesus Christ came to do a prison break from the tyranny of the devil who keeps people in bondage to the fear of death. And so let's walk through this passage and let's see how this works. And my prayer is in the end, okay, maybe if you're like me, we still got another gathering to get together with family for Christmas. My prayer is that the greeting, Merry Christmas, will carry with it the glad tidings that death's dark shadow has been put to flight. Amen? So our text begins by affirming the reality and necessity of the incarnation of the Son of God, okay? So the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This text says that the children share in flesh and blood. Children here is referring to God's children, those for whom Christ died, those who believe on his name and are given the right to become children of God, John 1.12. And because the children, these children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself partook or shared in or took on himself flesh and blood. He took on our nature. This, of course, points to the miracle of the incarnation, the infinite And glorious God infinitely humbled himself to take on flesh and become like us. And this is an astounding miracle. I would suggest it's one that we don't consider as deeply as we should. The true and eternal God came as a helpless, weak infant who had to be cared for. And he did this because you and I were born as weak, helpless infants who had to be cared for. It's a stunning miracle. It's stunning humility. I read this quote from J.I. Packer this last week, and here's what he said. He said, The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless baby 
needing to be fed and changed and taught like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. You can't dream up a story like this. But our God, this is the story he's written. Jesus, when he came in the flesh, he did not cease to be God. He didn't become half God, half man. He remained fully and truly God, yet he took on our nature. Our text says flesh and blood. Romans 8 says that Jesus Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was not sinful, but he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And so we affirm what the the Apostles' Creed says. It says he was, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, his only son who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And of course, Jesus did this for our salvation. But something our text seems to indicate is that this was necessary. It was a necessary thing for Christ to do because he, he came with a particular purpose. The incarnation was not an end in itself. It was a means to an end. When one asks, or if someone, if someone were to ask, why did God have to become a human? I mean, there's several answers someone could give, and there's several good answers someone could give, biblical answers. Someone might say, well, he became a human to fulfill prophecy. And of course, that's totally true. I think of Isaiah 7.14, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. That's a prophecy that Christ fulfilled. Someone might say that God became a man so that we would know what God is like. And of course, that's true as well. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image or the icon of the uncreated, invisible God. But one way to answer, and I think it's perhaps the most important way to answer, at least in terms of our salvation, is this, Jesus, God became a man, the the eternal son of God, took on human flesh so that he could die. Look at how our passage connects this. It says that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death. The word that there shows us this is God's, this is purposeful. He became flesh that through death he might accomplish something. The eternal son of God took on human flesh in order to die. God in his essential nature can't die, right? He possesses immortality. So Christ, the second person of the Trinity, came in the flesh truly Man, and yet still truly God, so that he might die for his people. And this is affirmed just a bit later in Hebrews 2 and verses 17 and 18, actually more explicitly, where it says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of God of the people. He had to be made like his brothers, that's you and I, in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. What's a high priest do? 
They offer sacrifices and they intercede for the people. And that's what Christ has done. He offered up himself and he now intercedes for us at the Father's right hand in order to make propitiation or to bear God's judgment for the sins of his people. You see, only God could pay the price for sins. And yet only a man can die for sinners. And that's why Jesus is the perfect mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is only one, me- only, only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So, we have God the Son coming in the flesh so that he might die and through his death accomplish two things or do two things, destroy and deliver. Destroy the devil and deliver us. Destroy the devil and the power of death that he possesses and deliver us from the bondage the slavery, the enslavement of the fear of death. So let's, let's kind of lean into each, both of these one at a time just a bit more. So Christ came and died to destroy the devil, that he might destroy the devil. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared or came, right, that he came to earth was to destroy the works of the devil. Here's the way our text puts it. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. One accomplishment of the cross is the destruction of the devil. We ought to praise God for that. We're going to understand, learn more about what exactly that means and what it doesn't mean, but we ought to praise God for that. It is done, right? Through death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, which is the devil. We need to understand what this means, of course, and, and what it doesn't mean. It certainly does not mean that the devil no longer exists. He's not obliterated. He's, he hasn't been snuffed out in the sense that he was annihilated and is no longer around. He most certainly is. It also doesn't mean that the devil is no longer able to harm us in certain ways because he can. In fact, Jesus Christ himself in Revelation 2, speaking to the church at Smyrna, verse 10, he says, some of you, the devil is going to put in prison. So the devil can do things like that. So how is the devil destroyed? Notice how the devil is referred to here, or how he's designated. He is called the one who has the power of death. So there's a certain power that Satan was able to wield that has been destroyed, and it's called the power of death. But, he, but prior to Christ's death, he was able to take swings at us and hack us to pieces with this certain weapon. And that weapon of death has been destroyed. The New American Standard, I think, is very helpful in the way that it, it uh, 
words this. The ESV says that he's been destroyed. The New American Standard says that through death, Christ might render powerless the one who has the power of death, which is the devil. He has been rendered powerless with this weapon that he has. This power of death that the devil possessed has been nullified. It's been made void. It's been rendered powerless through the death of Christ. And I think the clearest passage that helps us understand how Christ did accomplish this is in Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. Listen to what Paul says there. He says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Then it says, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What is this power that the devil has? Well, it's not like the devil somehow usurps God's authority or sovereignty or overpowers him, of course, no way. But the only thing, and this is what Colossians 2 draws out, the only thing that can damn us now and forever is unforgiven sin. And it will damn us if there's unforgiven sin. The devil is called the accuser in the scriptures, right? The word devil is the Greek word diabolos. We get the English word diabolic or diabolical from this word. The devil is a diabolical and wicked and vile accuser. And he accuses God's people, the saints, day and night, we're told in Revelation, before the throne of God. But Colossians 2 verses 13 through 15 says that the record of debt, this record of debt is sin, right? Jesus teaches us to pray in in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts, right? We have a record of debt with God. It's this mountainous debt of sin from the day we were born, up until this very day, this record of debt, our sin. And of course, this sin carries with it a legal demand. Our sin requires justice. Our record of debt must be paid. And guess what? We can't. We can't pay it. And our sin requires justice, the curse of the law for lawbreakers. And this, of course, stood against us, and it's... Colossians 2 said it was hostile to us. But what did God do? It says he set it aside. Now that might sound like he let bygones be bygones. Ah, let's just forget about that, all that sin stuff. It might sound like he just kind of swept it under the rug. Let's not think about that. No, no, no. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. God, in and through Christ, 
has dealt with sin decisively by taking it away. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore them. He took them. He has, God has dealt with sin decisively and the legal requirements or demands of our sin. In other words, Christ has taken our sins away, every single one of them. And he bore the curse of God for our sins. He bore the wrath of God in our place. And what did this result in? Colossians 2 goes on to say, He, Christ, actually God, the Father, disarmed the rulers and authorities, that is the devil and his evil powers, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Some translations say in the cross. By triumphing over them in the cross. The picture here is of a victorious general parading his defeated foe around the city of Rome for all to see, or a great city for all to see. And the devil has been conquered and defeated. And Christ has paraded him around as the victor over him. Of course, the devil still accuses us. He still reminds us that we deserve death. But when those accusations, and this is, this is maybe where the rubber meets the road for us. When those accusations are aimed at Christians, when they're aimed at God's children, his accusations are completely impotent. But see, we can do one of two things with the accusations of Christ. I'm sorry, the accusations of the devil. When the accusations come at us, we can say, no, 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 I'm really not that bad. Or no, I didn't do that. Or it's not a big deal. Or God loves me. Or we can do what Martin Luther said. He said, when the devil comes with accusations, you can look at him. I don't know that we'd see him, but you can look at him and say, yeah, what of it? Christ died for me. And he is at the Father's right hand on my behalf. The devil... His accusations are impotent when they're aimed at God's children. He is like a lion without teeth. He has a loud roar, but he can't wrap his, he can't sink his teeth in around our throats and destroy us. Romans 8, 33 and 34 says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The devil's power over death has been destroyed, rendered powerless, because for those who are in Christ, there are no unforgiven sins. Do you believe that? Do you? I don't know. That's precious, precious news. I'm more and more convinced that many and blood-bought children of God 
walk around not knowing this and live with kind of this low grade. And listen, I'm looking in the mirror. I mean, I think I do this sometimes. Kind of just walk around with this low grade guilt all the time. Not knowing that Christ, that God in and through Christ has set aside our mountain of sins and nailed them to the cross. The devil's power over death has been destroyed, rendered powerless, and because of this, brothers and sisters, we are delivered. Jesus came to die in order to destroy and to deliver. Because of this glorious work of our Savior, we now are delivered. We are free. We are released, or we can be, from the fear of death. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our sins and fears. Release us. Let us find our rest in thee. He's come. Right? We sing this song, and we don't sing it because we want Jesus to come the first time. We're, we're singing it kind of like we want him to come again, and we're looking back to what he's done and all of that, but we can sing it now. We know that he has come, and he has set his people free from their sins and fears that we may find rest in him. So, the eternal Son of God became a man so that he might die to destroy the devil and to deliver God's children. Let me just read, let me just say the, first, the two verses again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Lifelong slavery. The devil is a tyrant. And the fear of death is the prison in which he enslaves people. But his power has been broken through the death of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, of course, it's not that we won't die. We will. Right? And, uh, of co- well, of course, unless Christ comes first. I always got to add that on because, you know, we, I'm reminded by a couple of brothers every, every week as we pray, one of them invariably, sometimes both of them pray, Lord Jesus, come soon. And so I'm reminded of that. We ought to remember that. Unless he comes first, we all will die. But death has been transformed and thus is no longer something to live in dread and fear of. Death is still an enemy, right? The Bible's clear about that. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that it's the enemy. It's It's the last enemy that Jesus will put under his feet. But it's an enemy that serves God's purposes of ushering his beloved children into his presence, into paradise. Of course, our final hope is the resurrection. 
when these bodies are raised imperishable, incorruptible, immortal, all of that. I was having this great conversation with my, my little nephew. I was, I was on a walk with my dog and my nephew Zane the other night. And he, he's really interested in the resurrection and the new heavens and new earth. It's like, wow, so we're talking about that. That's our hope. That's our ultimate hope. It's not, it's not to leave these bodies and go to heaven. That's glorious and wonderful. But it's for these bodies to be raised incorruptible and live here forever in a renovated world with Christ. That's our ultimate hope. But even so, when Christians die, where do we go? Well, the New Testament calls it paradise. That's how Christ described it to the thief on the cross who was next to him. The thief said, Lord, when you enter into your kingdom, please remember me. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, today you're going to be with me in paradise. That's how Paul described it in his heavenly vision in 2 Corinthians 12. He, he says he was caught up into paradise. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 even said it would be preferable for a believer to die and leave these bodies and go be with the Lord. So that is glorious. Death has been utterly transformed. I don't know what you think when you, when you think about paradise. You know, our family has been given the great gift of being able to go down to Florida a few times in the last six or eight years, and we stay in this beach house with all my siblings and all the kids in Anna Maria Island, and I'm sure my kids would say, that's paradise. But it's not paradise the way Jesus is talking. What Jesus is talking about paradise and what Paul experienced in heaven as paradise far surpasses a week on the beach. Death has been transformed. And when we truly understand this, when this goes beyond just our minds and and kind of repeating a mantra, yes, I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die, or maybe pressed, will you go to heaven when you die? And starting to th- More than that, when it goes deeper than that, when it gets down into our soul, into even our bones, we are free. Amen. We are delivered. We are a free people. In fact, we are the freest people in the world. I just read a tweet this morning. And uh, the guy said, because this is in my notes, this verse anyways, and the guy said, we ought to cultivate the kind of life that when we're standing before the firing squad, which, you know, probably won't happen to any of us here, but it could, who knows. When we're standing before the firing squad, we say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. To live is Christ. That's what Paul said. To live is Christ and to die is gain. I, I love my life here. I love my family. I love being able to preach and pastor. I love my life, but, but to die is gain. Justin Martyr, second century uh, saint, bishop, um, maybe in Smyrna, I can't remember. Um, he was writing an apology and uh, he, was a, he was a philosopher. He was an apologist 
And he wrote in his book to his persecutors. I love this. He ended up having his head chopped off. So he lived it to the end. He said, you can kill us, but you can't hurt us. You can kill us, but you can't hurt us. I don't know what was going through his mind when he wrote that. I'm kind of wondering if maybe like Matthew 10, when Jesus says, they're going to put you to death, they're going to put you out of the synagogues, put you to death, they're going to talk about persecution for his disciples, and then he throws this in there, but not a hair of your head will be touched. I don't know what that, exactly what that means, but if their heads will be chopped off, but no hair will be cut off, I'm not sure, okay? I'm joking. Um, you can kill us, but you can't hurt us. And of course, this truth is what enables you and I to live boldly with courage and without fear in the time that God's called us to live in. Amen. 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul says, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And of course, the spirit that we've been given is none other than the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You guys know how it goes? But you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The very spirit of our Father and of Christ has been poured into our hearts. So, as we wrap up here, Christ has come in the flesh so that he might die in order to destroy the devil by taking away the only thing that can damn us, unforgiven sin, by which the devil's accusations can actually stick. And he's come to die to deliver us from the fear of death so that we may live fearlessly in the power of the Spirit, for his sake and glory. Amen? Let's pray.